0: You are listening to Polo DiMarco Podcast with Alan Campbell. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast for Polo DiMarco. Today on the show, we have Jeremy Murphy, the founder of 360 Best Spoke. Welcome.
1: Thank you. It's it's great to be with you.
0: Yeah, I just want to say uh, (laughs) congratulations on the fifth year anniversary. How does it feel?
1: Uh, it doesn't feel. Uh, it doesn't feel right, you know. Uh, I, I'm in a time warp. It does not feel like five years. It feels like, in some aspects, it feels like yesterday, and then it feels like ten years ago. So I'm still kind of like trying to figure out <laughs> what five years means.
0: Mm, how does it feel with all the experience buildup?
1: Um, it's incredible. I mean, I have had, I am so, so fortunate to work with amazing people. Charlie CM, a violinist, Jeff Latham, amazing florist, Yesen Davies, uh, an opera star, Lisa Renna, Renna Beauty. Like I literally have the most amazing uh, clients and friends. And every day is, it's not work, it's, it's joy. I I wake up every morning and I cannot believe how fortunate I am to work with such talents and to spread their their
0: message. Yeah, one of the things that I've found out with myself personally is that whenever I talk to people who are highly skilled in something, you can learn so much more from them.
1: Oh, that is, you know, I always learned everything. You need to leave the stage because you haven't. I learn things every day. I love learning, Um, you know, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was know what you don't know. And by that, I mean, like, you don't know everything and always be on the quest for knowledge and for insight. And I love hearing people's stories and learning something I didn't know. Um, You know, I have a classical musician and like, that's a world I really don't know about. And I learned so much about it. Uh, You know, a florist, there are so many things that um, I get to, uh, I'm exposed to every day. And, um, you know, the knowledge you soak in, is just incredible. It's such a, it's such a joy.
0: Who's one of the clients you previously had that you've learned the most, like most from?
1: Oh boy. Um, that's a hard question. Um, I think Charlie C.M., you know, he's a violinist. Um, he's also kind of amused to fashion designers. And from him, I've learned the art of being yourself and having your own style and your sense of being. You know, he is someone who's so comfortable in his skin and he he has such a presence and a uniqueness about him. And... You know, designers are always sending him stuff to wear and he always says, "Jamie, yeah, I am mean, not a billboard. Um, he only wants to wear what what he wants to wear and he only does stuff that he wants to do. And I love that about him. And it's really been such a, um, a learning curve for me. Um to just be comfortable in your own skin and and, and define your style, whether it's a way you dress or a fragrance or uh, what you do. He has been such a learning experience for me.
0: I think that coming from a content creator myself, having your own unique feel in the world it has your own unique perspective and people can learn from you. Whereas if you're trying to copy other styles or other people, it's just, it's not, it doesn't really have the same effect as if you're your own unique self.
1: That's absolutely true. And, you know, like there are little things like, you know, I've worked with perfumiers and, and beauty brands and like down to Having your own scent, like finding a fragrance that you like that speaks to you. It's, it, it's that little or a way you dress or even sending a thank you note, um, little signature items that you can do that really t- express who you are is really important. And I've learned that from the people I, I represent because they're so individual and they're so unique and they, they really understand who they are and what they're bringing to the table. And it's really, I've learned from that. So I've learned, you know, the importance of being unique and having a signature and how that really defines you. And and people remember, that's how people remember you.
0: Um, and Which one do you specialize in? Do you specialize more in like style or fragrance or um, artistic?
1: You know, I. that's a good question. Um, I started with artists and luxury and I've kind of branched out. So now I do uh artists that's the core of what I do. Um but luxury lifestyle, um startups, I love entrepreneurs. I love helping um small companies and brands um achieve brand awareness. Um you know, I have very unique clients. I have some nonprofits. Um you know, um, beauty brands, um, Mm. you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate that I have a very wide plate, but they all kind of fit into a brand. Like they're all on brand for me. Nothing's really surprising.
0: Mm -hmm. What about your style? Which one do you like to specialize in?
1: My style, you know, it is constantly evolving. Um, you know, I'm a Tom Ford guy. Um, I've always, you know, when, when he went out on his own and, you know, he started menswear and it it just spoke to me. It was so British natty. It was so put together and formal, but stylish. And it really spoke to me. So I kind of gravitated to him and, you know, I'll, I'll add flourishes here and there, but, you know, I always believe, um, better to be overdressed than underdressed. Um, of course, during the pandemic, we're all, you know, in our sweatpants, you know, like we're not at 21 Club or, you know, um, swinging from the chandeliers at, at the, the Carlisle, you know, we're all kind of at home. So which has been really hard to kind of have any kind of style. Um, But yeah, that's kind of where I, I fall into it.
0: Mm. How, how are things over in New York right now?
1: New York is kind of in a weird spot. We're kind of on the uh, on the razor's edge in the sense that it can go one way or the other. So, you know, cases are going down. Say, you know, Cuomo, uh, Governor Cuomo has done an incredible job. He really managed this perfectly. Not perfectly, but he very effectively. Um, New York City is... You know, restaurants are, are reopening, you know, 25%, 35%, which is great. Schools are reopening. But you know it can, like overnight, it, it can go the other way. So it's really hard to plan anything. Um, you just kind of wake up and see, okay, what's the situation today? And then that's how you plan your life. But, you know, making a reservation You know, two weeks later, uh, it might not come to fruition. So we're all kind of in like this weird bubble.
0: Yeah, I hope that everything gets better over there. I've never been to New York, but personally, I would really love to go.
1: It's, you know, I moved here 20 years ago and I love it. And, you know, New York is obscenely expensive. And one of the reasons why we live here, we pay to leave our homes, Like, you know, no one wants to stay indoors in New York. You're here to go to Broadway, to see friends, to eat, to drink, to shop. Um, And then COVID happened and we're all trapped at home, right? And suddenly it was like, wow, why am I paying this much money to be trapped at home? And so that's kind of a challenge because, you know, uh, what makes New York very unique kind of disappears and you know when you're paying three thousand four thousand five thousand a month for a one bedroom apartment and you're like oh i can't leave my apartment why am i paying this money um so that's kind of been a, a challenge but it's slowly like new york is slowly opening up like you can go to museums again and um restaurants and, you know, Berger of Goodman is open and, you know, your dry cleaner. And so it is kind of coming back to life, but we're not sure how long it
0: will last. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you all the best over there. Thank you. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. uh, so the first question that I'd like to ask you is you were the vice president of communications at CBS and the creator slash yes. editor of CBS Watch Magazines. What gave you the idea for a 360 best book?
1: So I had the pleasure of working with amazing artists when I was the editor of Watch Magazine and when, when I created Watch Magazine and it was very much a vehicle to promote the stars of CBS television programming. So, and, you know, we had shows like NCIS and CSI and Two and a Half Men and, Everybody Loves Raymond. We had all these amazing shows. Um, and it was very much a vehicle for that. And gradually, I expanded it to culture. Because I really felt like, you know, we've built an audience. And we really should open people's point of view to culture, to arts, fashion, uh, photography, um, authors, painters, um, so we created a culture section called Muse, and it was kind of my baby and through that I got to know people like Charlie C M and Jeff Latham and Yes and Davies. and it really expanded my mind and I loved working with these people and you know we did profiles of them and I would sponsor um, nights out with them like we did a night out at the Carlisle with Charlie c M and also at Yes and Davies. And so when I decided to leave, I said, I want to live in that space. I really want to work with amazing artists who I know. And so, you know, when I had this idea, I called Charlie and Charlie was, sign me up. I'm your first client. And then Jeff and Yestin and everybody kind of fell through. So that was the genesis of it. It was um, creating this culture section in the CBS magazine and meeting these amazing people and wanting to wanting to continue the conversation with them and I'm very flattered and humbled that they joined me
0: yeah that's that's really nice were you guys friends before
1: no um it's actually a really funny story I was this is 2012 and it was January two thousand twelve and I remember I was doing a i was due to the the Surrey Hotel in New York City. I was doing a review of them for the magazine and i um I went to this little diner before to have breakfast and I'm reading this obscure magazine and I read about this young violinist and you know impossibly gorgeous and you know perfectly you know, perfect pedigree and incredibly talented. And I said, wow, like this is the perfect person I want to feature in our culture section. And so I emailed one of the editors who worked for me and I was like, let's get this guy in the magazine. And then um, it just continued. Like I would read about a famous opera singer or a a, a floor, florist. Um I would read about all these creative talents, and you know I'm a reader, I read everything, I read The New Yorker, I read very obscure magazines, and I would find these incredible talents and say, "I want them in my magazine," and we would do that, and you know I was very fortunate to meet them and you know have start a relationship and so uh when i left i just called them all and said hey this is what i'm doing and they all signed up
0: oh that's really cool (laughs) yeah it just kind of fell into place then you just said hey i'm working on this new project would you all like to be a part of it and then they agreed and now you're fully dived into this this is good
1: it's interesting because i am not you know um i'm not like uh into psychology, uh, not psychology, but I'm not into like psychics or anything like that. Um, But I do really feel like, you know, the universe guides you. And I feel like that was the universe telling me uh, where my next step was. When I was doing the culture section, I really feel like that was a door to something else. Mm. And there was a higher power guiding me to it. And, you know, I am so in awe of musicians because, you know, I like to think of myself as very literate, very smart. Um, But reading music and writing music is the one thing I've never been able to do. And I've tried. And to see these people do it seamlessly, I'm in awe of them. And to work with them is such a pleasure. So I really feel like The universe brought me to this. It's not a coincidence. It's not random. It was predestined.
0: I think that the universe gives us little tiny nuggets in our life, and then it's our choice to grab it or to let them go past. They don't come up all the time. They come up very rarely, but it's really our decision to jump onto it. And it really seems like they just jumped onto it, which is great.
1: You know, I always say when the window opens, you've got to go through it. Yeah, dive (laughs) dive through (laughs) (laughs) it. And
0: I did. (laughs) Um, You have a phrase. It's best spoke because we give very customized personal attention. We call our clients our collection. Please tell us why.
1: So I have worked in media now. I don't want to age myself, but like, For 20 plus years. And I've worked with a lot of PR firms. And what I found is a lot of PR firms, they get really, really big and they promise you the world. And then they put an intern on your project or they put, you know, some 22, some 23 year old that doesn't know what they're doing. And I thought there was a niche there for a very um, boutique, um, hands on white glove agency that can give you that um that that rarefied that that personal touch um, because it wasn't being delivered and so that's you know that I purposely started small um and you know we only took a certain amount of clients and I've kept it that way and you know I don't I I tell all my clients, I offer them exclusivity. Like if you're a violinist, I'm not going to take another violinist. If you're um, a restaurant, I'm not going to take another restaurant. If you're a hotel, I'm not going to take another hotel. You get me, you get category exclusivity, and you get exquisite service where you get me all the time. I'm not going to pawn you off on some intern or some junior associate and we're gonna create very elegant, sophisticated media plan that really raises your awareness in a brand neighborhood that you wanna be in. And um, I, I, I'm very heartened that people saw that and came to me and we've been able to do it.
0: Yeah, I, from my experience, I feel that it's a really tough world for content creators because it's almost like you sign up, you pay the fee, and they just kind of put you into the background. Yep. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really it, difficult. <laughs> you know, media is a
1: tough business right now yeah. because it's very interesting because people are consuming media right now at record rates. You, you think of people are constantly on their phones, they're on their computers. They're consuming media at such a speed that we've never seen, but the value of content has been so devalued that the people who are creating this content, great stories, great photography, great video, have been so marginalized. And, you know, their their art is so um, minimized. And so it's this great dichotomy where you would think, you know, supply, demand, you have all this demand. You would think the, the, the value of what we do as content creators would be through the roof, but it's not. And so that's kind of a dichotomy. That's a real interesting um, um, uh, point that you made that, you know, we, we produce what people are being, what, what people are reading and consuming, and that should have really that should have a lot of value to it, but increasingly it's not.
0: Mm. It's almost like, as a photographer slash videographer's perspective, it's almost like back in the day you create yourself a portfolio and then you show it off and then people rate you. And then you're pretty much on a high profile for a, a consecutive amount of years. And but nowadays, if you're not always producing new and exciting content, you're just gonna be put to the side. And then they're just going to find someone else.
1: A hundred percent. And I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, when I was um, the editor, um, I would meet great photographers. And I I had the great fortune of hiring Patrick de Marchellier like six times and Ellen Von Noonworth and all these great photographers. And I remember, you know, when I would meet a photographer, you know, their agent would call me and they're like, yeah, well, you meet with this person. And I always loved it because, A, I love artists. I love photographers. And I loved when they brought their big portfolio. And because, you know, like seeing something in the flesh is a lot different than on an iPad. And, you know, the book. And I, I, I knew these, you know, they travel with this very heavy book. And we would flip through the pages and you would see it. And it was, uh, I loved that. And then it kind of flipped towards the end where you would have these photographers show up with an iPad. And I don't know how I felt about that because I felt like I'm really into the tactile experience and seeing it really big and feeling the pages. And all of a sudden, you know, I would get these photographers with all kind of gizmos and I always felt that they, they were doing themselves a disservice. Like if, if, if they had taken their work and printed it out and put it in a, in a nice portfolio, I would have appreciated it more. Um, I kind of evolved because, you know, that's what we had to do. Um, but I do miss those days when, you know, a photographer's vision and I really Really dictated what you did. Um, you know, it was a very singular, it was very uh, quiet. I don't want to say quiet, but you know, I would go to set and Patrick de Marchelier would just do what he wanted to do. And I knew it was in his hands. I knew I was going to get great art out of it. I didn't have to art direct. Um, and it wasn't overly produced, it was very elegant, sophisticated. and. I don't know. I I don't know if that is the case anymore.
0: Well, I'm, I'm going to be very honest. I've never actually thought about printing out my photos and having it up as a legit portfolio. <laughs> so I think that okay. I'm going so, to I, I start doing so,
1: that. <laughs> I'll tell you, like, I'll give you some advice. If you're dealing with someone like me, you know, I'm 45, someone older than me, you know, we're not ancient in the fact that we're not going to look at the iPad and we're not going to look at, what you have digitally, but having that book is very old school and it's a tactile experience where someone can feel the pages and flip and see those images large. And for me, that always got me like if you, if you came into my office and you had that and I can sit and I can visualize and just consume the images, you were more likely to be hired than if you just had an iPad. But I'll tell you, I found some really great photographers uh, digitally, you know, who, who brought an iPad in and they had great work too. So I'm not going to knock it, but uh, a little bit of the old school never hurts.
0: Yeah, it just has more weight and like boldness towards it because I don't, know, I don't know why I didn't put two and two together because I have one of those Instax cameras, the ones that print out the photos instantly. And and those memories there are worth so much more than when I just view an image on my iPad. Even if it's taken with my, you know, thousand plus dollar camera, the little images that I've just taken with friends or or, of like scenery, the ones that are in real life that I can get to hold, they mean way more to me personally. Right. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And you know what I also loved? is you know i i was very very fortunate that i i got to work with the top of the top but i also got to discover a, a lot of great photographers and i got really good at looking at a photo and telling you who took it and mm. i think that's a sign of a great photographer is if you can go through a book and not see a photographer's name and know instantly who took it and that's kind of what i was always looking for is like who has that? Like, a Dimash Elliot? I can tell. A, a, a Ellen Von Unworth, I can tell. A Dick Avedon, I can tell. And then I would find all these young photographers, and I was like, they have it. This guy has it. I remember I found a guy named Ian Derry in London who was fantastic, and he had it. And then another guy, Karen O'Connor, and another guy, Gilles-Marie Zimmerman. And finding those photographers, whether they came with a... a a giant portfolio or an iPad, um, finding those photographers who had a signature to their work, um, that's what I always looked for.
0: Mm, yeah, the people that have their own unique style and they're not afraid exactly. to show it. Exactly.
1: And mm. I love that. And I always, you know, you're a photographer and I, hopefully you'll appreciate this. But, you know, as an editor, you know, you hire the photographer for their eye and what they, what they visualize and what they see. And I always told people, my staff, I said, if you can't, you, you, if the photographer doesn't believe in a shot, you can't force them to do it. Mm, mm. So I always seated it to the photographer. And I would say, okay, this is our storyboard. This is what we want. And the photographer, if, if they said, no, I'm not feeling this move on because it's your eye. That's why I'm hiring you. Mm. Um, And if you don't believe in the shot, it's not worth taking. And I got a lot of crap from people because they always thought I was too in the bag for photographers. Um, You know, why didn't you tell them to do this? Why didn't you? And I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) I love photographers and it's their shoot. Like, this is my idea but it's your eye. I want you to bring it to life.
0: Hmm. Well, it's just like, uh, hiring a, like a sushi chef to right? cook a steak. It, yeah. It's like, it's, mean, just, it's not what they special. It's not, it's like, it's like, they, they're a chef. They cook food, but they don't really want to specialize in that.
1: No. And you know what? Like you are the artist,
0: mm. you know,
1: you're the reason I, 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 your art is why I hired you. And it, um, how stupid would I be to hire you and tell you what to do?
0: Mm, right. mm.
1: I'm not the photographer. I'm not the visual guy. I'm hiring you for that. So why would I dictate? And I I remember we would have these shoots and I would have producers and art directors telling the photographer what they had to do. And I was like, no, 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 no. Off the set, let the photographer do what he wants. It's his vision. That's why we hired him. He knows this more than we do. Let him work or her work. Um, and I, I was never disappointed.
0: Mm. Uh, you are an advocate for collecting Michelin star menus. How did you start this hobby? And why are you so fascinated about Michelin star menus?
1: So <laughs> I'm, <glad> you, <laughs> I'm surprised, but I'm glad you brought that up. Um, So, you know, I live in New York City, and I have a a, a fairly large apartment, two levels, a lot of wall space. And, you know, when I first moved in, I was, what, 25 or 26? And, of course, like any young guy, I had movie posters. I had, like, the Top Gun poster, and I had stupid shit. And gradually I was like, you know, I want something meaningful in my walls. I don't want something mass-produced. I I, I want to wake up and see something original, but I couldn't afford, you know, to buy a Picasso or, you know, something original. So at the same time, you know, I started traveling and, you know, I was with a very big company. So we got to travel well and we got to eat really great places and you know, I would have these amazing meals And I always said, this is, this is art in itself. Like if you go to like French laundry and Thomas Keller and you eat me, that's art. And so I kind of started stealing the menus. (laughs) (laughs) And one day I was like, why don't I frame these? And I just started framing them. And either I would steal the menu or sometimes I would be so bold and I would ask the, the chef to autograph it. And I just started framing them. And I'm like, I think I'm past 200 now. And what I love about it is every menu on my wall, I can tell you the date, who I was with, what I had and who the chef was. And so everything's original and it's almost like a time capsule on my walls. And it's original and it's personal and, you know, I have many parties and everybody's always fascinated by it. And so, you know, when Mike did a story on it in Paula DeMarco, I was very flattered. Um, and I didn't realize how unique it was. Um, I thought, well, doesn't everybody do this? Nobody does this. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> in some ways, I feel like I'm a freak. In the other ways, I feel like I'm kind of like, uh, you know, uh, an artist or, or, or some kind of tastemaker. I don't know what I am.
0: But, yeah, trust me. It's, it's what happens to creative people. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. What would you... I know that you have many menus. Which yeah. would you say that is your favorite location?
1: Oh, boy. Um, so, I love Paris. And I think the best food in the world is in Paris. So I have many menus are from Alain Dacoste, Joe Rebachan, uh, Tour tour d'Archon, like really Jules Verne, um, really, really great um, gourmet chefs, you know, one, two, three Michelin star uh, chefs. So that kind of is my wall. It's very, um, you know, there's a lot of great chefs in London, New York, but Paris, you know, uh, Alain Casse is kind of my favorite um, because he's so classic French and he's not into fads. You know, it's very like, you know, uh, traditional sauces and creams and meat and bread and very traditional, but with a very... Um, with a twist and, and an elegance to it. So, um, I would say predominantly like Alain Dacasse, but you know, I'm also kind of uh, a dichotomy in the sense that I love comfort food and I love a good grilled cheese sandwich. I love a good burger. (laughs) And so every once in a while I'll find a hole in the wall in New York city that has the best burger and i'll be like can i still can i take this menu and they're looking at me like
0: name <laughs> they're like where, where is it where oh. is it where's the best location or oh. your favorite
1: oh wait there was a restaurant called the spotted dog unfortunately it closed during um the pandemic but um it was this hole in the wall irish bar and they had the best burger um and then there's another one called jackson hole in new york city um so yeah, so it's, it's you, you, you can find great food anywhere. Um, I love gourmet food, but I really love comfort food. So it's, it's kind of like uh, a contradiction, but who cares? <laughs>
0: That's great. <laughs> mm-hmm. You said you understand the sensibilities of American media. Yes. And that is the key difference when you sell your services to Europe-based brands. Mm-hmm. What's the major difference between Europe slash American branding?
1: Um, okay, so American branding is all about consumers, and it's, it's very much inclusion. It's very much, we want everybody to uh, experience our brand and experience our products. European brands are very much exclusion. They want that rarefied air. They want to create barriers and they want to, um, you know, the Chanel's and the LVMH, they want that, that, that exclusivity that like, you're lucky to be here that like, okay, here's your entry point where American um, brands want mass. We want scale. We want everybody to buy in. So it's kind of understanding that dichotomy. Um, with press, it's almost, it's very interesting because, um, you know, the American I started as a journalist. Um, I was a newspaper reporter, a a magazine writer, a magazine editor, so I I know how journalists think. And, you know, in America, it's all about, it's a very democratic society. It's a very, um, um, you know, there's not a lot of class structure here. So um, we love a good come from behind the story. We love a great um, underdog. Um, So it's much easier to get press here for people um, if you've got a great client and if you've got a great story. Um, Overseas, you know, I found the British press very, very hard, very insular. The class structure is alive and well. Um, and it's harder, uh, and France, it's very hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get, um, because they just don't care. Um, you know, if it's not in their wheelhouse, they won't even reply. Uh, so, you know, understanding the sensibilities of different markets is, is, you know, I, if I have a client who uh, wants press in Paris, I am very honest with them. And I'll be like, this is what they want. Th- th- this is how they read media. Same with uh, um, UK, uh, same with America. So, you know, understanding the sensibility of, of each market is really, really important and how to talk to journalists in those markets. And one size does not fit all.
0: Mm. What's the most luxurious experience you've had? Oh, boy.
1: So, um, I left CBS. I was there 14 years. And I left in April of 2016, and I started my own company. So, I spent, like, April, May, June, July setting everything up. And I worked so hard, and I worked so fast, and I got so much done. And all of a sudden, I had August... Because we were going to launch in October. So I had August, the whole month free. And I wanted to do something. And so I arranged to stay at the Plaza Athenee Paris for a month. And I contacted a friend there. And, you know, th- this hotel, the rooms go there for like 1,500 euros a night. And I contacted a friend there. And I said, I want to stay for a month. And I know you guys are empty cause it's August and they gave me this really good rate. And then I sold all the stuff I had had in my office for years. And I had a Chanel surfboard. I sold for seven grand. I had a Carl Lagerfeld teddy bear. I sold for 2000, all this, all these like keepsakes that people had sent you through the years. I put everything on eBay and I sold everything and it, it funded a whole month at the Plaza Atene in Paris for a month. And, oh, my God, it was so glamorous. Like, I had a giant suite overlooking the Eiffel Tower. I had breakfast every morning. Um, you know, uh, concierges and, like, uh, the bar I would be every night meeting friends. And, oh, my God, it was so glamorous. It was so luxurious.
0: Mm, Yeah, it definitely sounds out of the world
1: it was and you know what entire (laughs) time i was like i will never do this again so i'm going to enjoy it because i don't know if i could ever do that again like when in your life do you have a month completely off and you're able to sell enough to fund it that never happens (laughs) 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 so i just did it and i had the best time i i it literally, it was, um, I made friends. I did great things. It was, I, I would never trade it for the world.
0: Mm, mm. What's a piece of advice you can give to the young adults trying to get into this industry?
1: Wow. Um, that's a loaded question. Um, okay. So what I tell PR people is spend a year in a newsroom. Because to be an effective PR person, you have to understand how journalists think. And to understand how journalists think, you have to be in their environment. So take a low-paying job as a a desk clerk, as a a reporter, understand your audience. Um, That's what I tell PR people. Um, I always believe, like, my motto is to, I always say, pay it forward. And by that, I mean, is like, um, do something kind for some, somebody, don't expect it in return, but expect them to do it to somebody else. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. And I really
1: feel like it, it creates a chain effect. Like I've, you know, I've lent people money. I've, I've given recommendations. I've done this, done that. And everybody comes to me and they're like, oh, we want to send you flowers. We want to, we want to take you. I'm like, no, no, no. Why don't you do that for the next person? like pay it forward. And I feel like that's really important. That's I've always abided by that kind of, uh, rule of law. When did you start doing this? I, you know, I started doing that early because I had been, I had benefited from that early in my career and I was like, all right, I need to pass this along. And I remember one time, um, I had written a story this is I was a newspaper reporter and I'd written a story about Dominic Dunn you know the famous Vanity Fair writer and somehow he got the article that I would written about him I mean I was this tiny newspaper and someone sent it to him and he sent me a note and saying how how flattered he was and okay I was 24 years old <laughs> Mm -hmm. he sent me this letter, incredibly gracious letter. And then I wound up going to lunch with him. He took me to lunch. I'm now 26. And that always stuck with me. So for me, it's always pay it forward. Like if I can do something for somebody, I'll do it. And I don't expect anything in return. The only thing I expect is for you to do it to the next person.
0: Mm. That's pretty much what I do with respect and treating people nicely.
1: Isn't that... It, you know what i'm so glad you said it. It, it it's so funny to me that people think that's novel like that's surprising isn't that what everybody should do like people say yes. hey, i'm nice to people aren't i original i'm like no <laughs> 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 like, why is that unique <laughs>
0: yeah it's just like i like being around you because you're just so nice it's like shouldn't everyone people be like, like this why what's happening here? Why,
1: why is that your thing why is that your brand i'm nice
0: <laughs> yeah it's like what a style it's like you have a nice style right? like, like
1: i'm always by, yeah. like you know people like oh he's really nice um shouldn't everybody be like why is that a thing like tell me if someone's mean and then i could be like okay i know how to act but someone being nice is,
0: you know, is that really your sale point? <laughs> Yeah, well I, I think that it's basically carrying energy and giving it to people. Right. So I think that I think that we're all batteries and we have all this energy. So we can either send it off as positive or mm-hmm. negative. So we could either talk negatively and, and work in this emotional structure or be extremely positive and then work in that structure. So both of the sides have negatives and positives, but it's truly up to ourselves to, you know, help out somebody if they're in need or if someone wants a helping hand, let's, let's do something in a positive act. And then in that, in that return, it's like, they want to, it's like, it's like it recharges themselves as well. That it's like, well, this guy here treated me with such respect. I feel better about myself.
1: hundred percent. you know, you're an artist. So you know that, you know, we're all intuitive and we can read energy. And I've, I've noticed, especially with artists and like yourself and, you know, you're on set and, um, the energy on set is so important. And, you know, I always said, you know, if the photographer is not feeling it, the energy's bad. I have failed Um, because people do bring positive energy and they bring negative energy. And for me, it was up to me as the editor to make sure everybody was emitting positive energy.
0: Hmm. What I normally do is that I normally meditate for about uh, ten to fifteen minutes before right. a shoot, and then I and then I, I get a set list of what I'm supposed to right. be doing, and then I just put on noise canceling headphones, put music that I feel that that I'm passionate with, and that carries the energy of the the set list, and then I just dive straight in. Absolutely, because yeah, because with a meditation you're setting yourself as a neutral base, right. and then when you have and then when you have the music, it really sets the tone. And then if anybody, because you know, it's like if you're working with a massive group of people, what if someone's had a tragedy, or what if someone's just gotten bad news? Then they're not going to be happy. And if someone's saying, "Hey, you're killing my buzz," it's going to make them even feel yeah. worse. So I prefer just to really isolate myself and just have the emotions connect with the the set list, and then just bring everything. Forward.
1: And that's important. And you know, um, what I found is. You know, when I produce photo shoots, you know, everybody thinks it's, you know, it's so like, you know, we, we all want the best photographer. And like, if you hire someone like you, a really good photographer, you don't have to worry. Like you're a professional. We got you. That's why we pay you what we pay you. Right. um And you have a good subject. For me, it was always without fail. The most important two castings was makeup and hair because They are in the ear of the talent the entire time. So if you get a really rotten makeup artist, they're literally whispering in their ear for hours and hours and hours at a time. Same with the hair. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, we were a celebrity magazine. And so you, we would take these celebrities around the world and you never knew what you're going to get. And sometimes we had the most amazing, you know, we call them glam, makeup and hair, but sometimes you just got rotten eggs and they would literally be in the talent's ear saying, oh, this wardrobe's horrible. This, th- this photographer's horrible. This set is horrible. These clothes are horrible. And it would, it would really um, ruin a shoot. And so as I got more experienced, I learned that those two areas I really need to put a lot of focus in and I got really good at it towards the end. Like, I knew who to hire and who not to hire. But, um, you know, a photo shoot, as you well know, you know, it, it's your vision, but you need a lot of people to bring it to life. And everybody has to be on hmm. the same page. And if you have one rotten apple, it could really uh, it could really spoil the
0: whole shoot. So, uh, How do you deal with the situation when somebody's salty?
1: I wish I could tell you there was a secret. I fucked up Uh, (laughs) so badly. Oh my God. I fucked up so badly early. Um, You know, part of it is talent relations. You know, when you're dealing with a celebrity, it's all about flattering them and getting them to lower their guard and, and, and be natural in front of the camera. And then you're dealing with artists and, you know, Just as you're an artist, as a photographer, the makeup and hair people are artists, too. And you're constantly trying to appease everybody. And I wish I could say there was a secret to it, but I'll tell you, I fucked up as many times as I succeeded. It really is, um, you know, when you put that many creative people in one setting and you expect one result, it, it can go either way. Um, you know, the good thing is, is like, you know, as we, as I got more experience, you know, I remember when I was hired Patrick Demarchelier, his agent would be like, no, 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 don't worry. We're going to hire everybody ourselves. So he would come with his makeup, hair, and, and I didn't have to worry about it. And it was professional to the core. Everybody was on the same page. Everybody was perfect. The images were perfect. The, the, the shoot was so efficient. Um, but, you know, he was $75,000 a day, right? (laughs) Oh my God. You you know, that's what you pay for. But then I would find, you know, some up and coming photographer and, you know, it's like, you know, I don't want to talk trade, but, you know, 5,000, 6,000, whatever. And you kind of really have to kind of, uh, do patchwork of like, we like this makeup hair person. We like that. Um, stylist and you're kind of putting things together and you're hoping it works right and sometimes it's magical but sometimes it's a nightmare and um you just learn
0: what about now do you have a preferred team that you like to with? i do for? i have
1: my go-to's um and that has mm. come from like look i'm 45 right now so i've been working in media for 20 years now. So actually almost, you know, I started when I was 18. So a lot more than 20 years. So I do have my go-tos because I'm comfortable with them and um, you know, I know the, the best stylist. I know the best uh, makeup and hair person. I know great photographers. And I also know how to bridge them and I know how to introduce them and I know how to get them to work together. Um, because, you know, left alone, they might not like each other, but with me in the middle and smoothing out the edges and getting everybody on the same page, they will. So, um, yeah, so it really is, it it takes a deft hand.
0: Mm. Hmm. If you were to go back in time and talk to your 18 year old self when you first began, what would you say? And like, what advice would you give?
1: Um, mm, that's a good question. Oh, you know, um, and I hate to say this because it's probably not what you should say. It was, but college was a waste of time. Uh, I Mm. spent five years in college. I did the five year plan and it really was a waste of time. I didn't learn anything. Um, I made some really good friends and I was the editor in chief of my college newspaper, but um, I probably would have moved to New York right after high school and started my career instead of spending five years in college. Hmm. Um, You know, there is something of, I always believe that you, you can't teach talent, right? Like you're a photographer, you have a good eye. You can't teach that to somebody that's the talent you're born with, right? Like I'm a writer, I'm an editor. I can't teach that. That is something you're born with. It's it's the same as being blue-eyed. It's the same as being five, six foot, seven foot tall. That is, that comes with the package. You cannot teach that. And, you know, so how however many years you spent in college, you can't teach a writer how to write. I remember- we would do these shoots mm-hmm. with uh, Dimash Elliot. and, you know, of course he is who he is. He would have a team pre-light the set for like 30, 45 minutes and he would come and he would look around and he would literally go to the lamps and say, no, and he would, you know, move light bulbs and he would move a light. Like he knew lighting so well. And. I remember he was shooting a portrait for me. I was very lucky. And I'm sitting on the stool. And, you know, he looks at me. And then he literally circled me three times. And he goes, I know how to shoot you now. And Mm. and that is talent. Like, you cannot teach that in Mm. school. Mm. And so what I was saying earlier is I would not have gone to college because I already had that talent. I already knew I could write. I already knew I can edit. And I went to college basically to satisfy my parents who, you know, you have to go to college. And I did it. And it's almost like a waste of five years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't really say that.
1: But, um, yeah, it was, if I could tell myself, I would have been like, yeah, just go for it now. Just strike, strike now.
0: Well, especially nowadays, because you can pretty much learn anything from YouTube or just Google in general.
1: Everything's on there. Um, You know, you can Hmm. edit movies, you can create movies, you can create music. But again, um, you have to have a talent. You have to have an eye for photography. You have to have an ear for music. You have to have. uh, You have to know how to use words as a writer. You have to know how to use paint as an artist as a painter um there's only so much you can learn it has to be innate it has to be in you and there is a natural hierarchy of talent mm-hmm. and i fran lebowitz is one of like my favorite people in the world she's a satirist she's an author in new york city and she is very adamant about there is a there is a uh, uh natural hierarchy of talent and not everybody is talented. Not everybody can write. There are people who are better. And that's something that, you know, not everybody's a superstar. Not everybody, Oh, not everybody as good as you. I've seen your work. Very few people can do what you do. Um not everybody. And the the sooner we realize that, the sooner we can get on with our lives. But you know, not everybody gets a gold star. And I hate to say that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, if someone hands you a resume, will will it matter to you if they have done college or not in a, in a particular field? Or would you prefer just to look at what they can produce? It depends what I'm hiring moment? for.
1: So if I'm hiring okay. for something artistic, I want to see their work. Um, and, you know, if I'm hiring for an admin job, you know, um, a pr person or you know a manager or something i always look this is interesting a lot of people are like oh do you look for their school i go nope you know what i look for i look for starbucks if you can work at starbucks you can do anything because think of that person on their feet how many things that they have to do they have to please the customer they have to they're they're workers they're worker bees they know how to hustle they know how to multitask. <laughs> so when I was dealing with an admin position, the first thing I looked for was service, where you were a, a, a bartender, a restaurant, Starbucks. For artists, I have to see your work. I have to see your portfolio. I have to see your writing samples. And I want it raw. I don't want anything. You know, I, sometimes I would get uh, people and you can tell that their work was so Photoshopped and I'd be like, let me see the raw work. Let me see, like, and mm. some people don't want to show you that. And that, to me, is a red flag, right? Like, I want to see your vision raw. Yeah, obviously, color correct it. Do what you got to do. But, um, yeah, so it really depends on on, on what you're hiring for. Um, but anything artistic, you want to see the work.
0: What is behind the name 360 Best
1: So... Work? That was an interesting question because originally I wanted, I love the word bespoke. And one of the reasons I love the word bespoke, Hey, I think it's an awesome word, but my boss at CBS hated it. And so I loved it more. <laughs> 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 so what I love just to spite him, I was I'm going to put that in my title. Um, but, you know, you, you know, you're setting up a company and the word was taken. And so, the whole thing was, well, we're giving people 360 representation. We're giving you the full circle. We're giving you, uh, you know, the PR, the content creation, the reputation management, the crisis communications, the, uh, the social media awareness. We're giving you the full circle. So that's a 360, but it's bespoke. It's unique to you. We're not giving you a formula. We're not giving you some cookie cutter, um, you know, uh, profile or whatnot. We're, we're creating something unique to you uh, from the 360 perspective. And that's where the name came about.
0: Given all your experience, what are you finding that people want today?
1: People want something original and surprising. That's what they want. They want to be... They don't want the same old, same old. They want to be surprised but pleasantly so. They want um, something original, um, a story that hasn't been told, um, a fresh perspective. Um, you know, they, they they don't wanna be dictated to. Um, they wanna feel like they discovered something themselves. So, you know, that's what I try to do as my artists is what's new. What's new that we can bring to people that will make them smile or perk up and surprise them. And, you know, cause there's so much content now, there's so many things um, begging for your attention. And if you can do something very sophisticated and surprising and uh, you know, Something that's a joy to their ears or their eyes, you'll get their attention, and I think that's what people want, especially now. You know, uh, with COVID, after a year of living indoors and not seeing anybody, you know, there's such a pent up desire for escapism, for um, adventure, romance, travel. We want those, you know. Uh, those heartfelt things. Like, no one wants anything gritty anymore. No one wants anything based in reality. We all want to imagine.
0: I'm very excited when everything opens back up because I honestly feel that it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties, like in 1920s. It's going to be this new boom where everybody's just super excited to reimagine their lives and go into like I, their I, new I, ventures.
1: I'm so glad you said that. I actually used that term Roaring Twenties with somebody. Uh, it's really? absolutely <laughs> gonna be that. Once everybody gets the vaccine, we have been pent up for a year of not seeing our friends. And you know, we're humans. We we like each other's company, we're communal people, we love eating, laughing, drinking together, hugging, dancing, and we haven't been able to do that for a year, right? And once we can, oh my god, it is going to be the roaring twenties.
0: Well, one of the things that I really focus on because of the pandemic is I take a lot of multivitamins, and I also have a lot of juices because I want to maintain this health inside of me. So if I do become sick, I want my body's immune system to really be able to cope with it. And then Yeah, move no, forward. like
1: I agree with that. Like uh I you know, I take a lot of vitamins. Um you know, I take a lot of uh shakes, juices. Um, and I think that's great. Like, I think, you know, there are so many little things people can do to live healthier. And, you know, um, I applaud you. Like, you know, if you can find some kind of regimen that makes you feel good and productive and healthy, do it.
0: Well, personally, I normally work out for uh, two to four hours a day because I'm trying to become a bodybuilder and and i already have like all these juices and, and health food supplements but i'm right. i'm mainly doing it just so i can feel good so i can feel positive and i'm just always wanting to keep on that momentum and having i'm not, i'm not vegetarian uh, i used to be for a little bit but yeah just just being clean mm-hmm. and, and feeling like nutritious how, how do you normally cope you with you know this? it's interesting do you, you follow a that, particular so, diet um, or anything
1: Last year, you know, the pandemic, I kind of, you know, had a, had kind of an off year. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't react well to the pandemic, you know, a lot of stuff changed for me. And so um, I was not as healthy as I should have been. So uh, 2021 came and I made a conscious decision to, to, to be more healthy. So I investigated some vitamins. So I take, vitamins in the morning and I take vitamins at night and I drink a lot of water and I try to eat every three hours, like mini meals, kind of like a not intermittent fasting, but grazing. Um, I avoid, you know, I, I took certain things out of my, uh, my diet um, and it's made a difference. And especially productivity. Like, so I am an early riser. I wake up at like five or six or seven and I get so much work done in the morning. And for me, that's so important. And I actually have a, I actually made a a a regimen where, you know, I wake up, I make the bed, I go down, I feed the cat. Like I literally have a to-do list in the morning and then I have vitamins and water and it's made a difference. I mean, I'm not, I really need to get back to the gym. A lot of gyms here have closed. So, um, I mean, I applaud you for working out that that uh, religiously. I mean, that's amazing. Um, maybe I'll get there, but um, I, I, I actually have made a point to be healthier this year.
0: Well, if we ever that's catch up, mean, we'll definitely be able to do mean. a workout. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, yeah. Well, I, like, it's, it's really funny because I just do it for fun. Like I, you know, there's this end goal, but really, the more that I do it, the more awake I feel, and the more in the moment and in, in the present I feel as well. If I'm, I don't really like running, but if it's weight training or, or doing deadlifts or, or squats or or whatever to do with fitness, it just makes me feel so much in the present because if I don't do those sets then I'm either thinking about something else uh, that's not even needed. So if I'm just in the moment and just like, okay, I have to get these out right now. You're just under all this, remote, like stress with your mind and body well, and that's the afterwards thing is, like, you, you know, just feel so euphoric.
1: And you know, I'm not a, I, I'm not into weights. I'm more of a cardio guy. And I would do like an hour and a half cardio, whether it was the treadmill or the stairmaster or whatever. And getting there, it was always like, you know, it's 6.30 in the morning, you hate life, blah, blah, blah. And then you do it and then you eat, And you feel great. <laughs> like, you eat and you feel great. And <laughs> um, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, like, it's for me, it was just getting there. Like, getting my ass out of bed and getting there. And once I'm there and I do it, I feel good. Like, you know, you do an hour, an hour and a half, and you feel like, you know, the day is yours.
0: Yeah, I'm using myself as an example. It's like if I do a deadlift that's like 100 kilos, that's a small mission in itself. So then if any other challenge throughout the whole entire day comes up, boom, I can do it nothing feels like it's unreachable because I'm always able to push myself in the morning. Like, cause I always train in the morning and then for the, yeah. So whenever another opportunity comes up or if I need to talk to somebody or plan a meeting, Absolutely. I, I you know, know, know the fact that I can do it, I can so get important. it done.
1: Um, I was never a morning person. And then when I left CBS, I trained myself to be a morning person and I started waking up at six and just doing shit, getting stuff done, whether it was as something as simple as making a bed or going to the gym um, and that really starts your day. And you know um, so I really like look to people who are also morning people. Um, I'm not a night owl. I used to be back in the day. I did a lot of partying, I had a lot of fun. Um, but now I'm very much a morning person and I'm in bed by nine. <laughs> I'm so boring. Like I used to be the rock star <laughs> life of the party and now I'm like in bed at nine watching Netflix.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what happens. So uh, so what's in the future uh, for you? well a lot um, of things. 16, so, best um,
1: I uh, this is a great story. So 11 years ago, I wrote a TV script, uh, a script for a series, and I uh, tried to, you know, I was at CBS and I tried to get it around and no one really cared about it. So I put it on the shelf. And then last year during COVID, uh, I was so bored, I found it and I started reworking it. And then I sent it around to people again, and it got noticed. And some very, very big name um, read it and uh, called me, and he's going to produce it. And they're now bringing out to studios and networks, um, which is amazing. Something I wrote 11 years ago. So um, I'm really excited about that. And then, you know, my company is celebrating five years, which is really cool. I'm very, uh, very proud of that. I mean, I didn't, you know, when I started it, of course, you know, you think you're going to conquer the world. But, you know, five years is a big deal as a small business. So that's cool. So, yeah, there's a lot of exciting things.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, that sounds really exciting a, with the a, TV show. Uh, is it a TV show? A 13 or a
1: 13-episode uh, cool, saga. Cool. Uh, kind of um, – the Italian Renaissance uh, in the modern age, I can't say more, Um, but it's something that we think like Netflix would love. Amazon would love, Um, you know, it's set in Florence and London. Um, We have a a really big actor attached to it. So uh, I'm incredibly excited about that. Um, Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, it's nice to have something positive this year. Right. You'll go to the premiere party. <laughs> it might be on Zoom. It might be on Zoom. I'm just warning you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, I'll be excited okay. anyway, so no, no problem. I'm excited it, for you. It was so. such a yeah.
1: random, I never expected. Like I said, I wrote this 11 years ago, and I dusted it off uh, during COVID, and I sent it out just randomly, and – the stars were aligned and someone important got it. And then the rest is history.
0: Thank you very much, Jeremy, oh, for, you for having let me. me. Have, this has week. I love it. Awesome. <laughs> Same here. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care. <laughs>